Good morning, and welcome to Christ Presbyterian Church. I am not, uh, I'm not the normal fixture here, so I'm sorry about that. But uh, Jason and Jeremy invited me to come and share the Lord's Word with you this morning. Uh, my name is Brent Corbin, and I get to serve as the RUF campus minister at the University of Tulsa. RUF is the college ministry of the denomination of which Christ Pres is a part. And um, some of you are on kind of our email distribution list, and you'll know that earlier this week I sent you an email saying that this is actually my last semester on campus uh, here at University of Tulsa. Um, I've accepted a call to be, I'm actually staying with RUF, and I'm working in an area coordinator role. And so what that is is I won't be on campus at, at Tulsa anymore, but I will be overseeing the, the work of RUF on 16 campuses uh, across Oklahoma, Arkansas, Memphis, Mississippi, and Louisiana. So that'll be my uh, not-so-small territory. So uh, please be praying for us as a family as we transition into that role. Um, pray for the students on campus as they transition into a new campus minister, and, and pray for the presbytery as they search for a new campus minister uh, to come here and, and be with the students starting this fall. Um, I would, I'd be remiss if, if here at Christ Pres with you I didn't kind of draw a bit of attention to the history with RUF and Christ Pres. RUF was, was the vision and, and the support for RUF was birthed out of this church. And so if you're new, that may be news to you. But if you're not new, if you've been here a while, you know that. And I just want to stand up here as, as one who's been serving for the last eight years with RUF. And on behalf of my family and behalf of the students, I just want to say thank you. Um, this church has played an integral role a very integral role in God's work on campus. And um, so please receive our gratitude and thanks for that. One other quick um, announcement before I pray for us. Uh, Pine Cove is a Christian camp out of Tyler, Texas. It's actually one that we're, as a family, familiar with. We go there to family camp every summer, and uh, one of our children has been going to just the overnight camp. So Pine Cove does a camp in the city, and they'll be coming this summer uh, the week right around 4th of July, and they've got a representative uh, out in the lobby. Uh, so if you're looking for something, uh, somewhere to dump your kids, I mean, something for your kids to do this summer uh, for a week, please go see Natalie out there in the lobby. She'd love to talk to you uh, more about that. Let me pray for us before we turn toward this passage. Father, we do pray that you would come and, and unstop our ears and, and open our eyes, the eyes of our heart even, that that we would see you in your word, and that we would see just how beautiful and how wonderful and how gracious and forgiving and loving you are. Lord, we, uh, we do come from all sorts of places with all sorts of circumstances, and you are the great unifier of people. And so draw us toward you and draw us toward one another in our time this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Last summer, I actually had the privilege of taking my daughter, my oldest daughter, Nora Klein, to that camp, uh, Pine Cove, and it was her first overnight camp experience, and so, you know, I don't know if, if you went to camp yourself, but just that first time is the range of emotions, right? Excitement as we drove in for six hours, and then you get there, and you see all the other kids, and they're all buddied up, you know, and you're wondering, who, who's going to be my buddy for the week, and you're taking all this stuff to the stuff to the cabin, and you unload it. Well, one of the parts of this camp, of the first day experience, is you have to take a swim test so that the, the camp can know whether or not you can swim unassisted for the rest of the week. And so we took her stuff to the cabin, she got her swimsuit on, and, and we walked over excitedly but nervously to the pool. 
And uh, she waited in line, and when it was her turn, she entered the deep end of the pool, kind of right on the edge, uh, with, with five other children. So there were six total, and they blew the whistle, and I'm, I'm at the other end outside of the, the fence, which was a good move on their part, uh, keep parents out there. And I noticed that the first couple of kids, they took off and they start swimming, and, and they're doing great, and the next couple peeled off, and in my mind, I'm thinking, oh, the lifeguard is releasing them in waves so they don't bump each other and get in each other's lane and all that. But I noticed that Norcline stayed on, that, on the wall down there and kind of stayed and stayed along with another kid. And so, you know, daddy cheerleader thing takes over and I'm yelling, come on, Norcline, you can do it, which she could. She's a great swimmer. You can do it, come on. And, and finally she peeled her hand off that wall and zipped down the, the down the pool, and it was no problem at all, and she got to the other end, climbed out, put her shoes on, threw her towel on, and, and she heads out the gate, and I give her a high five, and I'm encouraging her, saying how great she did, but I did say, hey, hey, babe, what, what happened down there? What was going on? And she said, this is so fun, she said, right where I got in, there was a sign that said it was 13 feet deep, and I've never been in water that deep. And so we kind of laughed about it, and, and she was fine. But man, I thought, that is, that is a picture of life, isn't it? It just, it's, it's overwhelming, it's scary, it feels deep, and we just want to hang on to whatever looks safe, and we want to hang on to the comfortable so that we don't have to venture out there for whatever may come. You know, relationships, they're hard, they're scary, they're they're fraught with unknown. We raise our children and we, we send them off and we don't know what's going to become. And it's, there's fear in that. Marriages are complicated. Roommate situations can be very difficult. Just ask our college students over here. Like, it's just hard. And then there's work. You wonder, will I ever get compensated rightly? As much as I think I deserve, will I ever get time off? Will I ever get in a position where I feel like I'm using my gifts or I'm being engaged? Will anyone ever notice me and appreciate me? That's life. There's all of these things which kind of add up to look like a 13-foot sign, and we just want to hang on. What if life, though, what if life is more than just a sum total of our fears and our our experiences that, like Ethan said, lead to what feels like disorder and chaos and just kind of a hanging on? What if there's a vision for life which is beautiful and which calls us out of ourselves into flourishing, into something more that we think that God would have for us? And what I want to suggest for us this morning is that vision of life is Psalm 8. That Psalm 8 itself is, is a bit of a reflection on the first two chapters of Genesis when God had created everything and mankind in creation and it's all good and very good. And David is, is reflecting on that and he's saying that's what we're made for. This is, this is what it means to be human. And so if you would, I want you to, uh, to stand if you're able. If you're not, that's fine. But let's give deference for God's word and we're going to read it here in Psalm chapter 8. It's a psalm of David. It says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You set your glory above the heavens. 
Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and all beasts of the field, and birds of the heaven and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is God's word for God's people. Please be seated. Before I jump in and go any further, quick confession, and this is for my friends out there who are type A. I am about to break the unspoken rule of guest preachers. I'm going to change the outline. So hang on, trigger warning for those of you who will be affected by that. I'm going to change it up for us. So the first point is actually the same. This passage calls us to worship God with our mouths. So right there out of the gate, verse 1, and then he repeats the refrain in verse 9. David is showing us that that part of what it means to be human is that we reflect back worship to God with our words, with our mouths, with the refrain of our lips. What is David doing here? He is doing, I would suggest, he's doing instinctively what we all do instinctively when we find something that is worth our worship. When we find something which is beautiful and which is wonderful, we talk about it. We take our words and we apply them to that thing. Think about it. You go to Andalini's and you have their pepperoni pizza and you taste the beauty of that handmade, home-sliced pepperoni and you can't help but talk about it. It's amazing. And on top of that, they give dough to the kids while you're waiting in line. It's the best. Or you go fishing up at Sky Took Lake in the Little Willie Cove and y'all, the bass are like the size of tree trunks up there. They're huge. And so what do you do? You go tell your friends about it. Or you've got that great second grade teacher who is giving particular skill and attention to your child who has extra needs. And, and what do you do? You, you tell your friends about her. She's amazing. You go to Quick Trip and you walk in the restroom and it's so clean, you could eat your breakfast sandwich you just bought off the floor because that's what they do. They make clean bathrooms and amazing food. So what do you do? You tell everybody about it. Quick Trip's awesome. We instinctively talk about the things that we find to be wonderful. And that's what David's doing here. He's saying, oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic you are. And yet he is, he's not just saying that the Lord is like one of these other things on earth. He actually makes a distinction here. He says that the Lord's majesty is in all the earth. And he goes on to say, you have set your glory above the heavens. What David's saying in that is is not that that his glory is just, it's kind of everywhere here. He's saying that it is above. It's not just the stratosphere, it's above the stratosphere. When I was uh, thinking about this, I was going to say that God's glory is a global glory because that's got a good rhythmic cadence to it, right? The global glory. Y'all, it's bigger than that. God's glory is universal in scope. It is bigger than our globe. It is bigger than our earth. It is everywhere. So it's, it's better than Andalini's. It's better than QT. It's better than fishing. It's better than the great teacher. God's glory is unparalleled. 
And so we worship him with our mouths. That means that when you see the things of God, when you see justice and rightness and righteousness prevail in our world, whether in in little small ways as your children get along (laughs) or make up after they haven't gotten along, or you see it in the court system when the right people are convicted and the wrong people are acquitted, you see justice prevail, we worship God for that, that there is order and beauty in that part of our world. We worship God in the things of, of intelligence, right? whether that is in scientific discovery or technological advancement. When you take your phone and the battery lasts all day long, that's amazing. That's like a 10-year-old invention called a lithium-ion battery. It has not always been that way. Just ask some of the folks in here. Praise God for technology. Praise God that that people in remote parts of the world can now receive top-shelf, full-orb education because of the Internet. That's incredible. God's world is amazing, and it's beautiful. Whether that beauty is in a spouse, or, or a flower, or the mountains, or a baby, or a meal, or your work, whatever it is, it gives us opportunity to reflect back God's goodness as we praise Him and worship Him with our mouths. What David's saying, I would suggest, is that the praise of our mouth actually makes us human. In verse 2 right there, he says, that out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes. This is a very, it's a, it's a deep and complex thing that, that David is saying here. But I'm going to boil it down like this. God is saying, I'm going to be worshipped. I'm going to be worshipped. And Interestingly, Jesus, in his day, he was walking around the temple and, and people were chiding him. The, the religious people of the day were chiding him because children were coming up to Jesus and worshiping him and saying, Hosanna, son of David, which was a high praise. Basically claiming, you're the Messiah, we worship you. And the religious rulers said, Jesus, are you going to do something about this? And what does he do? He quotes Psalm 8. He's like, hey, don't y'all know? They're doing what they were created to do. And elsewhere, Jesus said, look, and if y'all won't worship me, the rocks are going to worship me. I was created for praise. I was created for worship because that's who God is. And he's worth it. So, what do we give our words to? What do we give our words to? Is the worship of God on your lips? When you see something amazing... Does your kind of awe and wonder stay here on a horizontal scope? Or are our mouths and our lips and our words drawn upward to God? God, thank you that I can go all day without charging my phone. Thank you that my car can run and I don't have to take it to the shop every other week. Lord, thank you for this. Thank you for that. We were created to give God praise and worship him with our mouths. Secondly, though, we see that that God has created us to worship him with our hearts. In the reflection that David continues giving in verses 3 and 4, he's basically saying, Lord, when I consider how great you are and all the great things you've done, and I look at how much I've botched it, and I consider kind of us, he says, what, are, what is man that you're mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. So David, he gets this tension. He knows that we were created to worship God in fullness. 
in all of our lives. That's what we were created for. That's what we were oriented toward. And he also knows that we have blown it in all of life, across all spheres. We blow it. We don't worship God. We don't live our lives in deference and reverence for him. But, but he's sitting there and saying, but you love us. I don't get it, God. How can you do this? How can you be mindful of us and care for us? There's a tension here which is not unlike a tension that exists on a college campus when a guy asks out that girl. That girl meaning the pretty one he's been talking about for a long time. And she's smart and she's witty and funny and she's got great friends. It's the girl that like every guy wants. And he goes up to her and asks her out and look, if she says yes, I'll go out with you, There is something like awe and worship that happens in his heart. (laughs) Why? Because he feels the chasm of difference. He's like, oh man, she's all of these things, and I'm not. (laughs) Like, order and beauty and pretty, all those things which she is, like, no one's ever used that of me. Because I'm a guy, and people don't talk about us that way. So he gets that tension, he steps into that. Why would she go out with him? I've seen these things unfold for a while now. One of the reasons I think that she says yes is that she's betting on what he would become. (laughs) She sees potential there, maybe with a little help, maybe a, a few months under her care, like he'll be in a better spot. So, David... God, you're so great and so wonderful, and how can you give us a second thought? The answer to that from God is, well, there's going to be a future you that's going to make that possible. The prophet Daniel, a number of years later, would talk about this future son of man. Daniel 7 says this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Really interesting, isn't it? Here is another one like a son of man who's also given dominion. But where the rest of humanity failed failed in their stewarding that dominion and that creation... This Son of Man shows up riding on the clouds, receiving worship, glorious. It really is this picture of a Son of Man that is being worshipped as if he were God. And it introduces its own tension. So is it God? Is this Son of Man a God or is it, is it a man? And a number of years later, Jesus would show up on the scene and say, Yes, and I am He. The book of Matthew, 29 times, Jesus takes that phrase on himself, claiming to be the Son of Man. I'll just read a few of them. Matthew 9, 6, Jesus said, But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and walk. Matthew 16, 27, For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Matthew 12, 40, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. 
29 times. Friends, in Jesus, we see our future self. We see that great and glorious vision, not of what we will become, but of what he has already become. And what, by the power of the Spirit, as we believe into him, we are becoming more like. So Jesus is utterly unlike us in that he is perfect in his being and wisdom and power and holiness and justice and goodness and truth, as the confession would say. But here's the true wonder and beauty of Jesus. As the perfect one, as God, he deserves to be served, and yet what? He came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. As the perfect one, he deserves exaltation, and in his life, And in the ongoing work of the Spirit, he binds the lowly and the wounded, and he exalts them to a higher position. As the perfect one, the very source of holiness in life, he takes onto himself willingly, out of love, sin and death from us. Is Jesus God or is he man? Yes and amen and amen. He is the God-man who came to restore and rescue this world and to restore our humanity that we might worship him from within. That's who he is. That's what he came to do. And from that, we turn and we give him the works of our hands. Psalm continues its echoes of Genesis 1 and 2 and verse 5. It says, Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. That word, interestingly, is is a word for God's kind of the generic word for gods. This is actually a compliment. David is saying, man, we're we're but dust, but God, you say that we're really important. And that's exactly it. We are dust, and to dust we will return one day. But God has crowned us in an elevated place in this world. There is nothing in this creation that is given the dignity and worth that humans are. Through which Christ and his work He's restoring us to be that which we were created to be. Think about that. That means that as Christ is at work in us, he begins restoring us to that original creation mandate, that dominion to work and to be creative and to be fruitful and to to steward the world and to advance technology and to do all the myriad of things that we were set out to do. So that means that that whether you're doing that in engineering or in parenting or in accounting or in cooking and cleaning or learning and teaching and landscaping and well drilling or shipping and farming, literally whatever it is that you set your hands to do, it can be done to the glory of God and it worships Him. It praises Him just in the very doing of it. And some of you are consumed with, I know, but, but I don't ever share the gospel with anyone at work. I'm not, please do that. Don't hear me say don't do that. But some of you need to just have this category for showing up at whatever God has called you to do and and putting your heart into it and asking him to bless the work of your hands and to extend his goodness through bringing order to a company by doing a cell spreadsheets or by organizing the file room or whatever it is. God looks at that and he smiles because it matters. And yes, love your coworkers. And yes, pray for them. And yes, given the opportunity, teach them about Jesus and how good he is. And how he's remaking us into the people and the humans that we were created to be. 
And because that vision is so glorious, it is why, on the converse, when we are either unemployed or underemployed, or whether through some sinful motivation we are being lazy, it is why often those periods of our lives are consumed with depression and with apathy. And we can't imagine things being better because we feel like our humanity is being stripped away. And that is not accidental. That's not incidental. That is part and parcel of who God has created us to be and who Jesus comes to restore us to be. He restores us to be people who worship God with our hands. But then there's also a temptation on the other end. And I would guess that maybe more of us are in, in this place. And I'm not sure about that because I don't know your own situation. But, but most of us struggle with the temptation to overwork. Now, why is that? Well, rather than seeing our vocation and the work of our hands as the means by which we glorify God and, and restore our humanity, we overwork as a, as a way to try to play God. We want to be our own gods. We want to have control over everything, including our finances and therefore our security. We want to have control over the people at our work, therefore we can feel like we're the boss. We want to have control over our time, and, and so we work all ends of the day so that we can prove to ourselves that I have worked 12 hours today, I am important. And friends, whether it's underwork or overwork, both of them work against the fabric of our humanity because both of them are less than what God has called us to. The work of our hands is one of the ways, but it is, you are more than your work. You are more than your work. And you are more than your unemployment. God looks at you and says, you matter because I say you matter. You're made in my image, and Jesus is coming to restore that, but be very clear, that's where your worth comes from. And so as we receive our worth from him, we turn back to him and say, you're worth it. And that's all worship is. It's looking at God and saying, you are worship. You are worth worshiping. I'll finish with this. Last fall, I came across a New York Times article entitled, You Will Never Be Famous and That's Okay. So that's one that you want to print out and hand to every college student at TU. And the author of that article references a book named Middlemarch, which some of you may be familiar with. It was written in the 1870s by a woman named Marianne Evans, who actually wrote her novels under the name George Eliot so that people would buy and respect her books. I'm glad we've moved on from that stage. The heroine of this book, uh, this novel, is named Dorothy Brooke. And she was herself a wealthy young gentlewoman in a provincial English town. And she wanted to make her mark on the world through great acts of philanthropy and giving. But through a series of life circumstances which the book unfolds, uh, not the least of which is marrying a pastor, poor soul, um, her dreams wither away. And she never reaches that fullest potential that she had set out to be. She settles into a remarkably unglamorous life in a, as a stay-at-home wife and mother, and at first, it seems that she too has wasted her potential. But this is Eliot's final word on Dorothy. And, and a quick note, he references, super interesting, he references King Cyrus's river. And what that is, that's a historical allusion to uh, the Persian King Cyrus, before he invaded Babylon, 
back in the, in the 6th century B.C., he came upon this, this great river, and he sent his strongest horse out into the river, and it was swept away. And so rather than make the surprise invasion on this city that they had hoped to, what he did instead was that he slowed down the invasion and spent the whole summer diverting this river into 180 channels on both sides. And in so doing, just totally diffused the power of the river as these channels ran across the landscape of the battlefield that he was about to uh, approach. And Eliot says this of Dorothy. He says, Dorothy's full nature, like that river of which Cyrus broke the strength, spent itself in channels which had no great name on the earth. But the effect of her being on those around her was incalculably diffusive. The growing good of the world is partly dependent on unhistoric acts. And that things are not so ill with you and me as they might have been is half owing to the number who lived a faithfully hidden life and who rest in unvisited tombs. Friends, the height of what it means to be human, as David lays out for us here, is to worship God with the totality of our beings, mouths, heart, and hands, and to let the good news of what Jesus has come to do in his life and death and resurrection, to not only forgive your sins, but to change you and to utterly reorient and reshape your life from the inside out so that you can be the kind of person, the kind of human that you were created to be. But let's be clear about it. Most of us are going to be called to those sorts of faithful, unimportant kinds of existence that Dorothy was called to. In a bunch of unhistorical acts, you will day by day, with the work of your hands, with the smile of your face, the face, the words of your mouth, in the meditations of your heart, you will bring glory to God. That's what you were created for. So whether God may make you great or whether he keeps you humble, your life matters. And you can live it for the glory of God. And be, make no mistake about it, that will also be your good. And it will exist for the glory of the world. And he will use you to change the world. Because that's how the kingdom works. It starts small. Almost like a mustard seed, someone said. And in the end, its effect will be incalculable. Please pray with me. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Fill us with your love so that we might love you and praise you more than ever. Fill us with the strength of your spirit so that we might be sent out into this world for its glory, its good, and your glory. We pray and ask dependently in Jesus' name. Amen.